invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 19. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's on page 13 of the Black Pew Bible, Genesis chapter 19. As you're going there, hear the words of Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. The danger of compromising our faith, of loving the world, is a real and present danger today. It was for the psalmist here in Psalm 1, and it was also for a man named Lot here in Genesis chapter 19. Last week, we read in chapter 18 about Abraham's intercession, his prayer, for Sodom, for the people in Sodom. He prayed in light of learning what God was planning to do, and that is to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and others in that area. Doing so because of their wickedness, because their sin was great, because of the outcry against the city. Abraham prayed for God to spare the city for the sake of the righteous. And in chapter 18, we read Abraham's repeated prayer. If there's 50, spare the city. If there's 45, would you spare the city? If there's 40, if there's 30, if there's 20, if there's 10. And all along, God agreed. He told Abraham that he would spare the city all the way down to even if he would find even 10 righteous persons, the city would be saved from destruction. Well, following that time of intercession, verse 33 of chapter 18, if you look just above where we will be this morning, 1833 says, And the Lord went his way, and when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Now this day, this day of the Lord's visitation to Abraham, began back in chapter 18, verse 1, in the morning. Now moving, or in the, the day, I'm sorry, now moving towards evening at this point, we find that the Lord goes his way, Abraham goes back to where he was from, that is the Oaks of Mamre, and we find these two angels, these two other men that we met in chapter 18, are now going to come to Sodom. We see it in verse 1 of chapter 19, look at it again. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. So again, the, the, the three men that show up in chapter 18, we learn were Jesus and two angels. The Lord in physical form, the pre-incarnate Christ, and two angels in bodily form. So here, the, the, the Lord has gone back, and now we have the two angels that come to Sodom. And here, as they come to Sodom, they find Lot sitting in the gate of the city. 
Now, we'll remember Lot. Uh, Lot was Abraham's nephew. Uh, Lot traveled with Abraham back in chapter 12 from Ur all the way to Canaan, the land that God had promised Abraham and his descendants. In chapter 13, we remember that there was a conflict between Abraham and Lot. Their herds and their, their resources, there weren't enough resources for both of them in the region that they were living, and so they separated. Abraham gave Lot first choice, and Lot chose the well-watered Jordan Valley in the direction of or towards the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we've noted this before as we've gone through these, this section of, of Scripture, but we've noted before, we'll note it again, that in chapter 13, a lot lifts up his eyes and he sees Sodom. In chapter 13, uh, verse 10, he, excuse me, chapter 13, verse 12, then he moves near Sodom. And then in chapter 14, he is dwelling in Sodom. And now here in chapter 19, he is sitting at the gate of Sodom. Sitting at the gate of Sodom was, was sitting in the seat of justice. It, it, was a, it was a place of social interaction. What it indicates for us, based on scriptures such as Deuteronomy 16, chapter 21, chapter 25, to sit at, at this gate in this way meant that he was an elder of the city, that he had, had social standing among the city. Now, this might not seem like that big of a deal. That does, it, does it matter that he was living in Sodom? Many, many people live in godless cities today. Is, is there something wrong with somehow living in a godless city? Or, or there are many Christians who, who, are, who are businessmen who, who engage in, in the world, engage in industry, or, or politicians that, that engage in the, the politics of a godless city. What's wrong with that? But we will see, and we'll see this unfold more and more in Lot's life. The issue is not that Lot was in the world, but that the world was in Lot. And again, we'll see this more, but, but as we heard the words of Psalm chapter 1, that those should be ringing in our ears this morning. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sits in the seat of the sinner, nor... nor um, I don't have it memorized, apparently. <laughs> Let's try it again. Stands in the way of sinners, sits in the seat of the scoffers, right? Blessed is that man. Lot was not the blessed man of Psalm chapter one. Lot was in decline. We see it as gradual, but certainly progressive. Well, nevertheless, Lot saw the angels and he reacts beginning in the rest of verse 1, where we read, Then Lot saw them, referring to the two men or the two angels, and he arose to meet them. And he bowed himself, uh, he, he bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. And he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Throughout chapter 19, we're going to see uh, several contrasts between Lot and Abraham. 
Uh, all that we read about the interactions with Abraham in chapter 18, now how, how Lot is interacting here and the men of Sodom as well, we'll see many contrasts. Right? The first we already saw of, of Lot living in Sodom while Abraham was living in tents near Hebron. Now here in the verses that we just read, like Abraham in chapter 18, Lot is showing a measure of hospitality to these two men. We'll remember that when Abraham saw these men, he went into full hospitality mode, full host mode, and it was quite extravagant, really. Well, here we see a similar response, at least in part, in verse 2, when he bows himself with his face to the earth. That's what Abraham did as well. It's a sign of humility. It's a sign of, of deference to your guests. Now, we're, we're not told here um, if Lot knew who these two men were. We, we don't know that for sure. But, but what it does seem to indicate is that Lot knew something about them, that they deserved some sort of, of honor. And so he invites them into his house. He refers to himself as your servants, uh, your servant, as in your servant's house. He offers them a place to sleep. He offers them water to wash their feet. Uh, these men or these angels, then we find out, de decline the offer. No, that's okay. We're going to stay outside. We're going to sleep in the town square. Now, this was not an, actually an uncommon reaction or an uncommon thing to do for a traveler. If there was no other place to stay, travelers would do that. They would stay in the town uh, in the town square. But, but verse 3 tells us that Lot persisted or pressed them strongly. One writer says that this is that Lot manhandled them. Uh, no, <laughs> you're not going to sleep out there. You're going to stay in my house. Lot's response was likely because what, of what he knew about Sodom, about what he knew about the wickedness of Sodom, which we will learn about in this passage. He knew about the dangers that they would face sleeping outside uh, unprotected. Uh, Lot showed further hospitality by providing what is called a feast with baked unleavened bread. Now, it was hospitality, but it's not quite the same treatment that, that Abraham provided. Uh, nor are we told that anyone else was involved. If you remember the story with Abraham, Sarah was involved. He had a servant involved. He himself was standing over them, watching and, and waiting upon them. Uh, we don't see quite the same extravagance here from Lot. In Lot's mind, however, he may have been trying to simply avoid a possible scene in the city and protect his unexpected guests. Just Let's get inside. <laughs> Just come inside so that no one sees you. However, news traveled and the men of the city learned about these visitors. And in beginning in verse 4, we see the wicked conduct of those in Sodom. Look at it in verse 4. But before they had laid down, the men of the city, men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. So it's now nighttime, and the men of the city were told. This is all the people to the last man. Uh, they surround the house. Now, now whether they're um, Moses writing here, whether he's literally saying it was every man. Or he is making a, a, a statement of saying, basically everybody's there, 
right? There's, there's, there's a lot of people uh, here. One way or, or another, he, he's communicating the widespread wickedness in Sodom, and it wasn't regulated to young or old. It was both. And then we, we, we read, what we are about to read is, is a gang. That's what this is. The men of, of, of Sodom gang up uh, to commit or to attempt to assault these two visitors, to, to rape these men. And that's even what they say in verse five. Look at it. And they called to Lot, where are the men who, who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. They weren't looking to get to know them in any sort of uh, personal way. The word know here means to have sex with. It means to know them carnally or to know them sexually. This is a a proposition that is being made for homosexual sex, man with man. That's what we're seeing here. That's disturbing? Okay. That's what the text is communicating to us. There there are some in our modern times that want to uh, redefine or to uh, communicate somehow that, that, that that isn't what we're seeing or that isn't the nature of the, the, the condemnation of homosexuality, and yet the Bible is abundantly clear on this matter. From the beginning, from the beginning, God created male and female. God created man. And when he created man, he saw that man was alone, and it was not good for man to be alone. And so what did he do? He made a woman He made a woman named Eve to be the counterpart to the man, to be the companion for the man, to complement the man. This was God's good design. One man and one woman. That is the relationship. One man, one woman in marriage. That is where God intended his design to be. That's where he intended sexuality to be confined, confined to, to one man and to one woman. And any deviation, any deviation from that good design is never affirmed in the scriptures. Rather, it is prohibited and condemned. We can go to Leviticus chapter 18. We can go to Romans chapter 1. We can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We can go to Revelation chapter 21. Or we can even look at Jesus' own words in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19. Some people like to say Jesus didn't talk about homosexuality, but he talked about marriage. He talked about what the Old Testament had said. And the authority of the Old Testament is still true today. That God's design from the beginning is still God's design today. And it's a good design. God, God isn't keeping something from us. God God isn't isn't trying to spoil some sort of fun. No, God has given a a great gift to humanity of marriage, of a man and a woman, uh, of sex within the bond of marriage. And it's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. God has given it graciously to humanity. Deviations from it are just that. They're deviations. They're not God's design. Don't be misled, friends. Don't be misled into this somehow idea that this is uh, an alternate 
lifestyle that, that somehow God affirms. He does not. And that is not to be mean. That's not to be a jerk. It's to say that God has offered us something beautiful and wonderful. You don't need anything else. That this is God's good design. And yet here in Sodom, we see it being We see a deviation dramatically. Wicked, the wicked demand here by this men, by these men, is responded to by Lot in verses uh, six through eight. And Lot goes out to try to reason with the men. Look at verse six. So Lot went out to the men at the entrance, and he shut the door behind him and said, "I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters." Who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under my shelter, the, the shelter of my roof. There's many things to say here. <clears throat> Instead of staying inside with his guests, as Abraham cared for those guests, Lot leaves the men inside and goes out to reason with the men of Sodom. We should also note how Lot refers to these men in verse seven. Look at it again. And he said, I beg you, my brothers. The word brothers means companion. It means kindred. It means what you think it means. What it tells us is that Lot was acquainted with these men. He was friendly towards these men. Second Peter chapter 2 tells us a little bit about Lot. It says that Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man, talking about Lot, lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. That's how, that's how the, the epistle of, of Peter describes Lot, that he's this tormented, distressed man, a righteous man living in an unrighteous place among these unrighteous people. So yes, he was distressed and he was afflicted. One writer says he was offended, but he was also allured. He stayed there. We cannot love the world and love God. We cannot serve two masters. One will replace the other. That's how it works. Another writer says, do you see the torment in his soul? He was desperate to protect his guests as the Lord would want, but he was so desperate to make peace with the sinful culture in which he lived. So desperate, in fact, that he was willing to sell his daughters in the process. And men, if you have a, a shred of morality in you, what Lot was doing is absolutely reprehensible. What, what he was trying to do, right, was to avoid one sin, but in doing so by another sin. He, he deemed the immorality of what the men wanted worse than the immorality that he was suggesting of giving up his very own daughters. Now, Lot did righteously or rightly judge the situation. He, he called their deeds wicked. He did recognize that what their, what their propositioning was not okay. It was wrong. And Lot knew that. And he, he called it out as such. 
But he compromised himself over and over again, even in this very act. No matter the reasoning, what we're seeing is a man who was confused, tormented, conflicted, yet unwilling to forsake Sodom. Well, Lot's attempt here to pacify the men failed miserably. And Lot, who was a friend of the world, could not hold back their sinfulness. Look at verse 9. And he said, and they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. Not only were they bent on fulfilling their their demands, but anyone who got in their way would now become the target. We see that there when they say, now we will deal worse with you than with them. So the wickedness now is not only directed at the visitors, now it's going to be directed at Lot. What they wanted to do to the visitors, now they're suggesting they're going to do to Lot. The perversion that they were going to do to the visitors was now going to be the perversion that they would do to Lot. Here we see they accuse him of judging them. Kent Hughes says, in their eyes, absence of approval is unforgivably judgmental. Now, if that does not sound like a statement that goes with today's culture, I don't know what to tell you. The absence of approval is unforgivably judgmental. That is absolutely what we're seeing today. That the sexual revolution desires only affirmation and approval. And the absence of it is considered only reprehensibly or or unforgivably, I should say, judgmental. And yet for the Christian, we cannot and will not affirm what God has forbidden. We will not say that what is good, we will not say what is sin is good. We will not call good what God calls sin. We are people of the truth. And that means that we tell the truth. And the truth is not absent of love. There's a concept out there that somehow this this idea of divorcing love from truth That's a biblical error. Truth is love. Love is telling the truth. You don't have love without the truth. It's a misnomer. Christians are called to speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4 tells us just that. We must speak the truth. Because without it, without the truth, there is no love. It's not loving to lie to people. It's not loving to affirm things that hurt people. It's not loving to tell people something that that God says is worthy of condemnation is okay. It is not. Any sin for which men will be condemned should never be approved of by the church, by the Christian, ever, ever. Why? Because souls are going to hell and we're affirming it. This isn't only about homosexuality. There are plenty of other sins that Christians affirm. Woe to us if we affirm what God condemns. You don't want to stand before the Lord affirming what he has condemned. You don't want to lead people further into their sin. 
Surely you don't want that. Surely no Christian would want that for their unbelieving friends or their friends who are in sin. Certainly not. We would want them to come out of their sin. We would remember that, that we too have been in sin. We too have, have been under the wrath of God. We too once were enemies of God and therefore condemned to hell, to experience the judgment of God against our sins. We should remember that we too once were there, but for the grace of God, we still would be there. So any sense of calling people out of their sin is in no way judgmental. It's in no way saying we, we, we stand on some, some uh, moral high ground. No, it says that we too are sinners who have been rescued in the, the deepest, most powerful way and there's hope for you. In 1 Corinthians 6 or 2 Corinthians 6, when Paul talks about um, these sins that will not inherit the, the kingdom of God, the next thing he says, it says, and such were some of you, but you have been washed. That you've been saved. That God has rescued you from this. The church is not out there just condemning sinners just for the fun of it. We're not doing it to, to be judgmental. Any condemnation of sin, of any sin, including the sins that we're talking about this morning from Sodom, is out of speaking the truth in love. May it be so. Well, at this point in the story, Lot was getting nowhere, and now he's in danger. So the angels intervene. Look at verse 10. But the men reached out their hands... That's the angels reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they, that's the angels, struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house. That's the men of Sodom. Both small and great, young and old, so that they wore themselves out by groping for the door. Well, if it was not clear to Lot that these men were different, at this point it should have been, right? Uh, we, we see them rescue him, then we see them strike these men with, with blindness. We can note here that, that, that even in their blindness, like verse 11, struck with blindness, um, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out by groping for the door. So even in their blindness, their wickedness persisted. They were continuing to grope for the door. They were continuing to persist in their sinfulness. Sexual sin can dominate a person to the degree that it masters, it controls them. We must be careful. We must recognize the power of sin, the danger of sin that is so real and present even today. Abraham in the Bible is called a friend of God. It's a beautiful description of him. We've talked about this before. But what we can see in our text today, and we'll see more of next week as well, is that rightly said, Lot was a friend of the world. We saw it as he's sitting at the gate. We saw it as he's referring to these men as his brothers. We saw it as he is offering up his own daughters. He is a friend of the world. And James chapter 4, verse 4 warns us, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Lot was in Sodom. That's true. But more problematically, Sodom was in Lot. Warren Wiersbe says this, worldliness is not a matter of physical geography, but of the heart. The point isn't only that Lot shouldn't have been in Sodom. That's true, but it wasn't only that. It was that that Lot's heart was in Sodom. Throughout the scriptures, we find that there are other people who find themselves in similarly ungodly situations. Uh, We can think about Joseph being sent into Egypt, a godless pagan country in which he lived for, for many years and actually was part of the leadership of that country. And yet, what's the difference? God sent Joseph to Egypt. Or Daniel. Daniel in in Babylon was exiled into Babylon, carried away into Babylon, and yet God had a reason for him to be there. Or, Or Esther. We can think about these people and wonder, God sent them into these places. Their hearts were not there. And yet they were in those locations. And in those three cases, we see three people who were were not affected by the world, were not in love with the world, though they were in these ungodly places. Now, there's a popular uh, Christian phrase that we often have heard that goes something like, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. And that statement sounds okay, But writer David Mathis makes the case that this phrase actually should be revised. And he makes the case from John chapter 17. If you take your Bible and turn with me to John 17. That's page 903 in your pew Bible. John chapter 17. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. When he prays for his disciples, prays for believers. He prays for believers that are yet to come to Christ, you and me. And in verse 14, starting in verse 14, he says this. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. David Mathis, his revision goes like this. We are to be not of the world, but sent into the world. In, but not of. That's the first one. Not of, but sent into. He explains it this way. The beginning phrase, or the beginning place, is being not of the world. That's the beginning place. 
And the movement is toward being sent into the world. He writes, the accent falls on being sent with a mission to the world, not being mainly on mission to disassociate from the world. So we ask ourselves, how, how are we living? Are, are we living just to disassociate from the world or are we living as sent into the world with a purpose and on a mission? Are, are we living in the world in such a way that we're loving the world and the things of the world? Or are we living as a missionary who is sent not to participate in the world, in the world's system and sins, but to bring the message of salvation? See, Lot was in it and he was of it. And there are many like him. Jesus was not of this world, but was sent into the world in order to save the world. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 makes that abundantly clear. I've, not come to, I've come to seek and save that which was lost. I've not come to be served, but to serve. That's why Jesus came. He came to be a friend of sinners. You may say, you, you sound like you're saying two different things. You told us not to be of the world, and now you're telling us that Jesus was a friend of sinners. Yes, he was a friend of sinners, but not to, to participate in their sin. He, he was a friend of sinners to point them to salvation. His, his place was not to be part of the world's system, but to call people out of the world's system. He calls us out of the world to give us a new heart, to give us a new motive, to give us new desires, and then sends us into the world to participate, not to participate in worldliness, but to participate in the mission of being a light unto the world. Do you see the difference? The starting place for the Christian is that we're already out of this world. We're already not of this world. That's the starting place. The direction is sent into the world. Lot was never sent. Lot was a righteous man. He may not have been of the world, but he was living in it for all that it would give to him. The way of the world leads to judgments. And as we go through this passage next week, we're going to see that unfold. But the way of Jesus, the offer of Jesus, the prayer of Jesus is that we would be out of the world but sent into the world on mission. The way of Jesus is the rescue, salvation, and then on mission. The world and worldliness lures us in. It lures us in in such subtle ways that we may not even notice. It's only when we can be quiet before the Lord. It's only when we, we recognize what God has actually called us to that we can see how much the world has invaded us already. And none of us are untouched. None of us are untouched by the world and worldliness. Lot is a cautionary tale of what the world does, of the temptations of the world, of the lure of the world, of the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, the pride of life, 1 John 2. He's a cautionary tale for you and for me to guard ourselves 
to guard ourselves from it. And how would we ever guard ourselves from it? By looking to Jesus. By looking to Jesus. By remembering why he came. He came to rescue us. He came to be sent. And what does he do? He not only rescues us, but then he sends us back into that same world to help others see and believe. Being a disciple of Jesus basically and simply means that God uses us to help others trust and follow Jesus. That's what you're called to do. In fact, that's what Lot should have been called to do, to help the men of Sodom trust and follow Jesus. Not just to point out their wickedness, but point them to the way. Point them to his God. May we do the same as we point people back to Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word that calls us to come to you. Calls us to forsake this world and the worldliness and all the pleasures and values that it promises and to find our hope and our joy in you, in your word, in your good design. Even now this morning, there are some surely here who are caught up in the world, caught up in worldliness, believing lies about what is true. And so Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see today. Maybe it's easy to see how Lot has failed. Maybe not as easy to see how we have failed. Give us eyes to see. Give us eyes to know the truth and turn our hearts to you. Call us out and send us back in for your honor and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh God, you raise-